0: We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, in chapter six of the book of Proverbs, I had Charles read to you a text out of Romans 16, where Charles read the text that says, Keep your eye on those who cause hindrances and divisions contrary to the teaching which you learned. And turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and deceptive speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. They're like jackals on the outside of the herd, and they're looking for a certain person. The Greek word unsuspecting is the word akakos, a k a k o s. Kakos means evil. Akakos is the negation. No evil. Those that are unsuspecting. Little Red Riding Hood. What big eyes you got, Grandma. What big ears. What big teeth. Better to eat you with. Couldn't tell the difference between a predator and an 80 year old grandmother in her nightgown. All right. That's when you're stupid. And that's who they're looking for. We would call them in our vernacular a knave. They're young, and that is pronounced in a certain word. What's the word? Naive. That's why if you harm a child, it's called statutory this, because they may have been consenting, but they didn't have sense enough to know. And so that's who they're looking for. As Paul said, weak women weighed down with lust, led on by various desires, always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Those that are less taught. And so, what we're going to look at is like Matthew 10 talks about. When you go out, be innocent as doves and be wise as serpents. you got to think like a snake. Paul said, we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes. Put on the full armor of God to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You know what the word scheme means in Greek? It means mind game. I'll fool you. He is the liar and the father of lies. And so as you go through life, if you have any experience at all in life, you know that you pass by numbers of quicksand where you can stumble into it and find yourself uh, in a world of hurt. Later on, you won't stumble, but you have to be wise not to fall into it. So I have simply named this sermon... After a uh, the group Undisputed Truth in the 1970s wrote a song called uh, "Smiling Faces Sometimes." Anybody? If you don't, just stand and dance while I sing this to you. Right? Smiling faces sometimes pretend to be your friends. Can you dig it? Smiling faces hide the traces of uh, something another where evil begins. Beware of the handshake that hides a snake. Beware of the pat on the back that just tries to hold you back. Smiling faces, sometimes. You old guys, would you agree with that song? Smiling faces. Sometimes, you better be careful. Smiling faces hides the traces of evil and where it begins. Got to be on your toes. So we're going to look at smiling faces. Uh, my songs are on a CD back in the back, and you can <laughs> <laughs> Well, the first one right here, in verse one through verse five. It says, my son, if you've given, you've become surety for a neighbor if you've given a pledge for a stranger, snared with the words of your mouth, caught with the words of your mouth. It's the pledge. It's when you're surety. We have a term for it in the banking industry. It's when you're a cosigner. And you're a cosigner for particularly a stranger. What that means is, just to put some points Uh, To sign surety means that you're responsible financially for another man's financial irresponsibility. If he messes it up, you bear the brunt. It also means that you don't renege to do what you said. But if you've given a pledge, verse three, deliver yourself. If you've come into the hand of your neighbor, go and humble yourself and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes. In other words, you don't, Not do your word, but you beg to get out of it. Because it's not, one scholar said, this text is not to banish generosity. It's to eliminate gambling. God never asked for us to put him to a foolish test, to paint ourselves into a corner to where our entire existence comes or goes upon another person's faithfulness. That's dangerous. It's one thing to assist another. It's another thing to gamble on him and to put your life in jeopardy. Old guys, would you agree that life is risky enough as it is without creating a disaster for yourself? And so if you've got a kid, a lot of us have cosigned for a kid. But we look at the kid and we evaluate. I think he can, and then we make sure that we co-sign for like $20, okay, something like that. All right. You got to make sure when you co-sign that you can bear the brunt of that infidelity. You don't put all your eggs in a basket. My buddy, Jerry Falbo, that uh, worked at First State Bank, he would have people that would come to him about the issue of co-signing. What do you think? And he would say, well, let let me point something out. Uh, people don't naturally need cosigners. They need cosigners whenever they have proved a possible infidelity to their word. And the reason they're asking you to cosign is that this person is a risk. And so when you cosign, the bank does that so that the risk isn't on them. The risk is on you. Now, the question is, do you trust this person because the bank don't. And secondly, can you bear the burden of what they default on? So think long and think hard as to whether you can do this. The older that kid is, the better. Uh, I like them to be 60, 70 years old. Okay, <laughs> i to put my trust in them. Giving, one other scholar said, interesting point on this. He said, giving should be voluntary. It should not be manipulated and wrung from another person. Daddy, you got to pay this or the bank's going to put you in jail. Sorry. I'm heading off. So be careful about the stock market that you put everything on orange juice and pork bellies. Okay. Okay. And it has to come through or you're sunk. Ecclesiastes says, Divide your portion to seven or eight, for you do not know whether you shall be successful. If you're going to venture something, make sure you can lose it. Like my uncle Aubrey, he liked to go to Las Vegas once a year, and he was a printer, and so he would save up his money to go gamble. Uh, but he would only take with him the cash that he had saved because Uncle Aubrey knew if I can lose that, I'm okay. If I win it, we're all happy. But I have to come back to his wife, whose name was Teresa Bonaparte. (laughs) She was from Corsica. So be careful about marrying the uh, nephew or niece of an emperor. Okay. Okay. And so that's the first one. Make sure you don't find yourself in something that can sink you financially. Number two in verse six is called sloth and sluggardliness. This isn't something in a person you avoid, this is something in yourself. If you see this in yourself, beware. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. Which having no chief, ruler, or officer prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. Uh, Sloth and sluggardliness is when you can't get out of initial inertia. It's when you're told to get a move on. It's somebody that wants something, but they can't generate enough gumption to plan it, incrementally see what must be done, and then get after it. Uh, And you'll notice here, one author called this the peril of the snooze alarm, where you just can't get out of bed. They're called the great drutherer. Would you like to be happy? I'd rather. Are you willing to get out and work? Oh, Later on, yeah. And so this ant, I've often noticed it's a female ant right here, okay? Having no chief officer or ruler. What that means is uh, this ant doesn't have to be coerced. It doesn't have somebody over them telling them, you've got to do this. We have a term for it. It's a certain kind of discipline. It is called self-discipline. It's called intrinsic motivation. And this person uh, gathers her food in the summer and her provision in the harvest. Ants don't go south for the winter because it's hard to travel when you're an ant. Them little legs. What they do is they go down and they all work together And they go out and they gather in the harvest and they bring it into the colony and they all eat through the winter. And so you have to do something without any coercion and you have to do something that does not have immediate results. In other words, you have to do something simply based upon the truth of what is there. Winter's coming. In winter, I will desire at that time to eat three squares. If I don't do what I have to do now, I'm gonna, what the proverb says, I will beg during harvest. And so, without anybody dominating you or making you do it, you do it. Early to bed, early to what rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Who said that? Ben Franklin, poor Richard's almanac, that you're going to have to be self-disciplined. And so, let me show you something interesting. Go over a couple of pages to chapter 13 and verse 4 and look at an identical proverb. You see verse 4? The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. Question, does the sluggard wish that things would be better off? Yes, he does. He craves. He has a longing to be better off. But he craves and gets nothing. Because uh, the soul of the diligent is made fat. Because he's not diligent. He can't make himself get up and do the incremental things that need to be done. A little, a little, a little. It's not that he's speaking against sleep, but he's speaking against irresponsibility. How many of you did okay in high school until you left the parameters of your friendly home and you went away to college and you ended up with a 2-3 on scholastic probation? Like moi. It's because I was okay if I had mama beating me out of bed. My problem when it was all self-discipline, I didn't have it. And so a whole lot of kids struggle when they have to get on their own and see if they truly have uh, diligence. Uh, One time I was in Stillwater, yep, Oklahoma, doing a conference and a kid came up back in the mid eighties and just started visiting with me. His name was Corwin. He was an African American kid. He was from uh, Dallas. He wasn't there for the conference. He had just graduated college. And I asked him, he looked like a West Point graduate. And I said, where are you from? He said, I'm from Dallas. I said, where'd you go to high school? He said, Pinkston. Now, if you ever been in Dallas at Dallas, Pinkston, that's hard country. And he was from Pinkston. And I said, really? I said, uh, what are you doing now? He said, well, when I was growing up, he said, uh, I didn't have a father. didn't know who he was. My mother, it was whoever the guy was that night. And he said, on a couple of occasions, I had to take guys with knives and get in between them and my mother. And he said, I, had, I slept in so many aunts and uncles' domiciles that the school couldn't get mailed to me. They would send it to one place and I'd go gather it. And he said, I got to looking and I saw what was happening to my family and my neighborhood, that my buddies were getting killed, going to prison, getting on drugs and uh, getting arrested. And he said, I just watched it. And I said, we're about to have a new limb on the family tree. I'm going to do different. And he said, I knew that the only way I could do this was I had to get out of here and I had to go to college. And he said, that was just like, going to the moon, there was no way I could go to college. But he said, I found out that they gave scholarships if you were an athlete or if you were a good student. And so I said, I want this, I need this, I will do this. And so his study became the uh, stairwell outside his mother's appointment over in the projects. And that's where he would study and he set his heart and he nailed every single class and test. To get a A. I must nail this test. I must read this material and I must memorize it. And he did it. And he ended up graduating from Pinkston with a four point. He also was a good athlete and he played cornerback for Pinkston. And he was good enough to get recognized because he understood if I'm gonna play ball, I better be fast and I better hit hard and I better go down on kickoff teams. I better be dominant on that field. In other words, the uh, blind guys ought to be able to come to the game to hear me play. All right, (laughs) that's when you pop people. And he did, Corbin Armstrong. And he got him a scholarship to Yale. And at Yale, uh, he played cornerback for him and he continued his four point Now he just had a better place to study. And after two years, he saw that the real uh, path for him was scholastics. And so he dropped football, went full academics, and he graduated at the top of his class at Yale. And because he was such a good athlete, he had an inquiry from Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. And so he became a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. And so now he has graduated with a bachelor's, a master's, a doctorate from Yale, from Oxford in the area of sociology. Where does he work? Wherever he wants. Wherever he wants. And he willed himself by saying, I want this. It requires that. I must do these. I will. And there was nobody to get him out of bed. He did it and he incrementally attained it. When I was at seminary once, Dr. Howard Hendricks got up and he said, you know, I just wonder how many of you, you young guys have ever wanted something you could not have. And you had to dream and then you had to translate that dream into a vision which requires a plan. And you day by day would incrementally build something until you got it. Desire realized is sweet to the soul. Proverbs, you did it. He said, that is worth all the degrees you could have is the ability to do that. And uh, I remember he was speaking to a group of, of businessmen. He said, how many of you were shaped by want in the 1950s and 40s? And you got out because of a dream that became a desire, that became a plan that had initiative and perseverance, and you got it done. How many of you have triumphed over that kind of hardship? Every hand went up, the Dallas Salesmanship Club. Then he said, how many of you are making sure that your kid never has to go through that? And he says, you're cheating them. He said, what's this proverb mean? You ready? Uh, An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. That means you give your kid what he wants too early and you'll ruin him. That kid has to struggle. David, you get anointed king at 15. You get to be king at 30. And we're gonna put you through it and you're gonna learn to trust God. Abraham's gonna have a promise of a kid. When he's 75, the kid comes at 100 and we're gonna put you through it. We could have a kid anytime, but the daddy ain't ready. And story after story, Paul, you're going to be a missionary. We're going to train you for 14 years walking up the ladder, and we're going to get you ready. And so the greatest thing that is happening to many of us is to be put in a place of trial, to say, God, I will, I will. Jesus, though he was a son, learned obedience from that which he suffered. He had to dig in and push himself, and so do we. And so, he tells you, if you do this, verse 11, you'll get away with it for a while, but your poverty will come like a vagabond and your need like an armed man, and down you will come, and you're gonna end up like Billy Bob Pittman. How many of you know Billy Bob Pittman? I went to high school with him, okay. I hope you don't get this tape, okay. He was a rich kid, his family-owned family owned the roller rink. And he was a great athlete. He went out for baseball his sophomore year. He was all district as a center fielder. But then he got kind of lazy. He got into doing some drugs, chasing the girls, drinking, and he enjoyed short-term pleasure with no ultimate benefit. And uh, he quit his junior year. And then his senior year, his grandmom and granddaddy bribed him to come back. Please come back, darling. Okay. If you come back, we'll give you a 1968 GTO. I'd I'd take one now. And he got one, big red 500 horse. And he came back, was all district his senior year. Went away and uh, got to doing drugs You got to have money to do drugs, so you're going to have to steal. Because if you do drugs, you're probably too lazy to work. And so he started stealing, and then he started doing stuff on drugs, and then he got caught, and then he got caught again, and he went to uh, Huntsville. And he told me one time at a reunion, he said, "You know, when I was in jail, that was the happiest I was." He said, "I always did the right thing. Yeah, there's nothing like a beating put down on you to make you do the right thing." And now. He's pretty much wasted his life and he's ready to die. Problem, he was cursed with bounty. Never learned how to push himself. And so, he says, don't let this start in you. Where you won't, all you will do is dream, but you will not plan, initiate, persevere, and attain. That's life. Well, In verse uh, 12, let's look at somebody else. We've looked at uh, financial irresponsibility. We have looked at sluggardliness. And in verse 12, we're going to look at a worthless person. Literally, the Hebrew says, a son of Belial, of Baal, or a wicked man. He is worthless and he is wicked is the man who walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes and signals with his feet and points with his fingers. This is a guy that unlike the previous diligent man, he wants to rise. But he doesn't, like the ant, want to work. So what he does is he comes in the back door and he slanders and he creates trouble, and he disrupts, he splits and divides, and then he takes over uh, those whom he as the lead jackal has congregated to himself. He says he is two-faced, he is treacherous. You ever read Dante, the Divine Comedy, as to who's on the bottom of hell? It's Judas and Brutus. At tu Brute, he was there to knife Julius Caesar. And that's Dante put them on the bottom of hell. Brutus and Judas. Men on the inside that sold them out for personal ambition. And so this guy creates a fifth column. Y'all know what a fifth column is? It's a term that came about during the uh, uh, Spanish Civil War that there were four columns marching on Madrid. And I believe it was Franco who said, I've got four columns coming and I've got a fifth column within Madrid. Those that are on the inside trying to bring subversion and bring us down. It's the fifth column, those on the inside working against you. And they have their own language. How many of you remember Robert Redford Paul Newman and the Sting? First date I ever had with my wife. The Sting, anybody? Okay, great show. Jerry Lewis was a director, and he watched the show like 10 times to see how they did it. They conned the audience. Go watch it. You'll laugh out loud. They conned the audience. Let me tell you how they did it. I'm not gonna run. You don't ever tell about The Sting or Psycho. It was his own mother. Okay. I'm sorry. But in The Sting, There's a con going on and nobody knows it, but the cons and the audience and the sign is that whenever you see that it's a means of understanding and the con is on. Well, these guys are in uh, verse, uh, let's see in verse 12, they walk with a perverse mouth. They wink they signal, they point, and with perversity and heart, they continually devise. This guy's got a plan to bring strife and division and takeover. He is ambitious for power, but he is not willing, like the ant, to work his way up. He'll come in the side door, and he'll split the thing, and he'll take over. Do y'all remember a guy named Absalom? And he sat outside the gate of Jerusalem for two years and people would come to David and he would interrupt them before they got to David. Hey, the guy would fall at his feet. He'd say, stand up, stand up. And he would kiss him. And then he would say, you know, your appeal is just and good, but you're not gonna get any justice in there. Wish that I was a judge. Oh, that somebody would appoint me. I would bring justice to the land. Here, God bless you. Go ahead. And he would wait outside the gate and slowly win Israel's heart away from David to himself until the time that he got a critical mass and they sounded their trumpets and they said, Absalom is king. And he led a rebellion. Anybody remember what happened to Absalom? He hung himself on his hair and got speared. A guy named Abner did the same thing and died. A guy named um, Adonijah did the same thing and died. A guy named Joab did the same thing and died. So it's always immediate success and then later execution. So our author says to the reader, do not get caught up in this. Do not make yourself part of a coup. You don't do it. He says... And verse 15, his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly he will be broken and there will be no healing. This guy, and I'll show you what they do. Flip over to Jude, the next to last book of your New Testament. It's called the Acts of the Apostates. We begin with the Acts of the Apostles and we end with church history being given. No hope that we're going to bring about the kingdom We're just going to be a rescue vessel. But in verse 16 of the book of Jude, these guys that divide the church, they are called in verse 4, you see what Jude calls them? Certain persons have crept in. They're creeps. The word creep means to stand alongside of. Whenever you're going to be a gate crasher, you stand by a guy with a ticket and you sneak in like you're valid. These guys sneak in. Like they're valid. Incidentally, that's the way a cancer cell works. All cells have a certain protein that can be identified by their white blood cells, except a cancer cell. It is a stealth bomber. And so you don't. your body doesn't notice it. Well, these guys are stealth bombers. They get in, and then in verse 16, they grumble. That word grumble is called in language, uh, an onomatopoeia. Y'all remember what an onomatopoeia is in your English class? It's a word that sounds like what you're trying to produce. It doesn't mean anything. It just sounds like it. The clanging of bells, the swooshing of the hawk, the grumbler. It's the Greek word, gongusma. Uh, just sounds like what it is. Get around, Kendall, Gongusma talk to the French horn players, you know, Ken, of a goose. Mine, yeah. He's always gone goose mine out there, you know, and you just create undercurrents. And then the next thing you do is you find fault and you point out things you don't like. And then you're following after your own lust. It's not that you are great and wise. You're just ambitious And then you speak arrogantly. After you talk this guy down, you talk yourself up. And then you flatter people. Oh, you're you're a great guy. You're not being done right for the sake of gaining an advantage. Advantage grumbler. And then what you do is, verse 19, you cause divisions because you're worldly minded and you are alien to the spirit of God. And so... This guy will do what is called shooting the pill. They use it in business where you become, you know what I mean when I say a a water cooler warrior where they stand by the water cooler and gripe and they'll take somebody that's not in the know and Mel used to say they'll shoot the pill. They'll gripe about this guy and they'll put poison in him to get him on their side. And then pretty soon you start multiplying or you start metastasizing. I have seen this happen in businesses. It happens in churches. It happens in government. It happens in city council meetings. It it happens in sports teams. It happens with peer pressure. Uh, They become the hyenas that circle the pack. And they look for the weak and the akakos that can't differentiate greatness and treachery. And then they get on the inside, they build their critical mass, and they wait for their moment. And when they do, his calamity will come suddenly. God's blessing is not on him. When I was at Dallas Seminary back in the 70s, there was a movement kind of going through the seminary of Reformed theology. And one of the points of Reformed theology was... Uh, a limited atonement that Christ did not die for the world. He died only for the elect. It's called covenant theology. and uh, There's good guys that hold to it, but Dallas Seminary does not. They have an unlimited view of the atonement, uh, which I do, and God does, and so it's the correct view. Uh, But they got some guys that went there If you're a reformed guy and you go to an unreformed seminary, you need to understand that and keep your mouth shut and not go around the back door and start trouble. Because if if you leave this church and you need to find a church and you go to a Baptist Arminian church, well, you have to take it upon yourself that they're Arminian, that they're not going to hold the sovereignty of God in election. But once you join that church, I don't care if what you think is right, you can't start trouble. Amen? Because that's not a doctrinal issue. That's a moral issue. So if you're going to leave that Bible someplace and go away to South Louisiana and get in a church called the Glory Barn Tabernacle or the fire-baptized women of the uh, elite brethren, whatever, and it's a Pentecostal church, that's okay. But don't you start griping when people started getting slayed in the spirit and starting you a division in that church because you knew what it was when you went in. Is that right, buddy? Not that you are a member of that particular church because that's not a doctrinal issue. That's a moral issue. I've had guys that have left the area and gone away to a church that, you know, passes a plate like three times a week and they said, boy, I don't like, I said, friend, they've been doing that since before the civil war. And you're not going to come in and change things. So if you're going to go there, you need to keep quiet. They don't believe in a second coming. Don't believe in a rapture. They hadn't believed in it since their inception. Once you go there, you got to, You can't start trouble. Error we can live with. Division, that's demonic. So you've got to bite the bullet. And so these guys, well, this is what happened to Dallas Seminary. I don't know if you were there at the time. Mid-70s, buddy? Okay. There was a guy that was reformed, held to the fifth point, uh, limited atonement. Argued back and forth with Walford. Walford let him know, did you know this is who we were when you came here? Okay. What he did was he wrote out the letter that he mailed to Walford, and put it in the mailbox of every single student at Dallas Seminary. Why did he do that? He was going to create a rift and lead away the weak. And uh, he hasn't done well since. And that's what these guys do. And he tells you in verse 16 through 19, it happens to be satanic. Now watch this. In verse 17, there is their attitude. It's haughty. In verse 18, there is their plan. A wicked plan. And now in verse 17, they begin it with a lying tongue. They unofficially will start lying. And then in verse 19, they will officially be a false witness. And then in 17, it'll affect their hands. In 18, it affects their feet. And so it's like the author just takes the entire body from the head, the mouth, all the way down, that this guy is like a battalion that doesn't make a mistake. He marshals all of his forces to create a division in that government, in that synagogue, in that nation. Just a second. Do y'all remember a guy named Jeroboam? He took over Israel after uh After Solomon defected, the kingdom was given to Jeroboam. What a deal he had. God was going to let him govern the north, and then Benjamin and Judea would be governed by the southern king, the descendants of David. And God said, there'll be no war because I'm dividing this because of Solomon's sin. Jeroboam, you've got it. You know what he did? He went and put idols way up north in Israel at a place called Dan And then he put idols down south on the dividing line between the north and the south at a place called Bethel. Idols, was that right or wrong? Wrong. Why did he do it? Because he had to divide the nation. He said, if I don't do this, they'll all be going down and worshiping at Jerusalem and I'll lose my clientele. And the most important thing to me is my job advancement. And so I'm gonna set up false gods to keep you from going down south. Well, the priesthood's down there. I'll invent my own priesthood. We celebrate Passover, I'll invent my own feast. And he started a false Judaism to divide the nation so he could attain a position of power. And for the rest of the Old Testament, every time it talks about a wicked king, it says he followed in the sins of Jeroboam. Became a reproach. And so this guy, as a result, And verse 19, he spreads strife. That's the result, is he divides the people of God. When you get home, get out your Google and Google up a guy named Koresh, a guy named Manson, a guy named Jim Jones. Anybody here doesn't remember Jim Jones? And the king of all charlatans, Joseph Smith and a guy named Benedict Arnold and a guy named Aaron Burr. They all had the same modus operandi, ambition, grumbling, accusations, dividing, waiting to overcome, and they all died miserable deaths. And so, what an encouraging message. But are you seeing what Solomon's doing? He's taken the Jewish reader and he's putting an arm around him like a daddy. You be careful about guys who can't handle their money and they want to get you in there. You be careful about laziness in you, that you dream big things, but you live little things. You be careful. You be careful about having worthless people play on your sympathies to get you off to follow their coup because you're gonna get hung by your hair and executed. Don't you do it. Whenever you see the pimps and the pushers and the whatever flourishing and they want you with them, don't you do it. You stay in verse 20 with the commandment of your father, the teaching of your mother, Bind them on your heart, on your neck, and when you walk, they'll guide you. When you sleep, they'll watch over you. When you awake, they'll talk to you as you meditate. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light, and reproofs for discipline is the way of life. Son, if you want to live well, don't follow after wicked people who say, Take the easy way. You go with your Bible that'll do this, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You let the word of God smite you and get you back where you need to be. You walk with God. What's the best way to avoid Weeds in your lawn? Can I tell you? Do y'all know that I've been Lawn of the Month twice? (laughs) Yes, probably a lot more, but they didn't want me to dominate the uh, lawn scene. The way you get rid of weeds is you fertilize your lawn. That's how. And the fertilizer will make the Bermuda and the St. Augustine grow thick, and it'll choke out the weeds. Because the weeds have a very shallow root system. And that's why they pop up so quick. And so fertilize. The best way to protect yourself from this stuff. Is to know your Bible. Blessed is the man. Who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Or stand in the path of sinners. Or even sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is. Is the law of the Lord, and in that law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that will yield its fruit in its season. Its leaf won't wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They are like shaft that is driven away. They will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. Know your Bible. Amen? Let's celebrate communion. For just a second, Lord, we will think of Jesus who said, Father, if it be possible, take this cup of Calvary away from me. Yet not as I will, but let your will be done the Lord, I will follow you. I don't want to be nailed up. I don't want to have my side speared. I'm not fond of being beaten with the cat of 9 tails or having thorns in my brow. I'm not that excited about nails in my feet and my hands. But this is the way that your path leads. Satan has given me a viable option. But I'm not going to do it. I will follow you. Shall I say take this cup from me? No. But thy will be done. Because when it's all said and done. I'm going to rise. And ascend. And save. And return. And judge. And recreate. And they they shall reign forever. And so we're going to do a great thing. And so I'll bite this bullet right here. And so I pray for all of us who go through life that we might walk in the light of your word. And so we'll remember now him who said, this is my body. Amen.